So the series is called Confident, uh, a life that wins in the end. Don't you want to know that at the end of this journey, you're going to be in a winning story? Now, everyone in our current world of America thinks they're going to be in a winning story. It's called, in modern times, a participation trophy, and that's what you get if you show up. Now, some of you get that, and others of us don't because we're older and from a different generation. I'm from the generation, 1970, 85-pound Falcons. This is what uh, your pastor looked like, pretty intimidating out there. And in 1970, on the 85-pound Falcons, here's how it worked. If you won, you won. That's how it worked, 1970. Now, we've come a long way from 1970, but here's how it also worked in 1970. Just nod or give me a little affirmation if you were alive back then. If you lost, which means you didn't win which means the other team actually won. The other people scored more touchdowns than your team scored, or other people on your team scored more touchdowns than you scored. You lost. And when you lost, you got to look forward to the talk. And does anybody know what the talk is? What is the talk? Who heard the talk? Who's heard the talk? Mom or dad or both put their arms around you and said, well, son... Just want you to know that you can't win them all in life. And this is a good picture of what you have to look forward to in life. We don't always win in life. How many of you heard that speech? But you did good and we love you. And then, you know, when the 85-pound Falcons, the stakes weren't extremely high. And so the real payoff was, are we going to McDonald's? That's really all you want to know. And the good news was, in, in our household at least, we went to McDonald's, whether we won or we lost, the cheeseburgers were still in the deal. Now, there was a kid on our team, he didn't eat if we lost, and he's probably, if you're here today, you're still working that out, and maybe there were some other families like that, but we weren't one of those families. It was, hey, you did good, you played good. Even if you didn't play good, my dad would say you played good. My dad wouldn't say, you know what, you obviously don't even weigh 85 pounds, and that obviously played into a lot of things today for you. No, he'd say you did good, and then he would say, do you want to go to McDonald's? And I would say yes, and we would go, and that's the way it worked. There were no participation trophies. The participation trophy was you got a jersey and a helmet, and you got to be on the 85-pound Falcons. That's a participation trophy. Now, it doesn't really matter. It's like you showed up. You're amazing. You're awesome. Everyone is awesome, and everyone's getting a prize. But can I tell you something that you need to know? It doesn't work like that in real life. And it, hold on, a, a lot of the younger people were just like, what is happening here? I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel a great void and a chasm is opening up right now, swallowing all of my ideals into it in this moment. What happened to utopia? Listen, it's not like that in life, but here's the main thing that we have to get our hearts around. It's definitely not like that in eternity. There are no participation trophies in heaven. You were awesome. 
You're all awesome. Everybody's awesome. Everybody gets a trophy. No, this life is a walk of faith. And those who faithfully walk toward Jesus get a prize at the end of this life. And it is the guarantee, listen to this today, it is the guarantee that you win in the end. Not some I hope, I'm doing my best, I feel like I'm in this good, bad balance, I'm in this you know, treadmill of religious activity. I don't really know how it's all going to play out. No, God wants you to have the confidence that you are going to guaranteed win in the end. And he's making that promise to you and me today. In the New Testament, in several places, it actually says that. It says, and you're going to receive a crown. In, in one case, I'll just read you one of the cases. There's five of them in the New Testament. One of them is found in James chapter 1, verse 12. And some of you, this is going to be an immediate connect to this message for you without even hearing the rest of the message today. He said, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Not blessed is the one who wins the trial, Blessed is the one who wins the game. Blessed is the one who doesn't have a trial. Blessed is the one who conquers the trial and turns the trial into a great victory. No, he said, for some, the blessedness is you persevered under the trial. Anybody already saying, okay, keep talking to me because that's what I feel like I'm doing right now. They persevered under trial, having stood the test, that person For doing what? Persevering and hanging in there. For persevering and not giving up. For persevering and keeping faith and not losing confidence. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised. See, there's the word connected to those who love him. And crown in this passage means winner's crown, not participation trophy. It literally means when it says crown of life, Stephanon is the Greek word. It comes from the Greek contest of the day. And when in the Greek contest, someone won, they received a victor's wreath called the winner's crown. And so what God is saying is, if you trust him, follow him, put your hope and confidence in him, at the end of this journey, you can look forward to a victor's crown. A Stephanon, not just, hey, you did your best and everybody's awesome, but no, you believed in the promise. See, that's the connection. They believed in the promise of God over their life. And I want you to know that you can live with that kind of confidence. We're not talking about self-confidence, and we're not talking about a lack of self-confidence. We're talking about God-confidence which also is called faith. And God wants us to be people of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it opens with a beautiful depiction of what that looks like. And this is what it says. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
So you can take these words, faith and confidence, and interchange them in the story. You could read this and not lose any meaning. Faith, now confidence is faith in what we hope for, or faith is confidence. So the writer of Hebrews is saying our confidence rests in what we are counting on in the future. And I believe we've become short-sighted in our faith. I believe we've lost touch with the payoff that Christ is preparing for us in heaven. And because of that, we become myopic and our confidence is shaken by the circumstances we find ourselves in in life. But God wants you to walk in every season, in every circumstance, confident. Confident in what? Confident in what you are hoping for and assured about something that you haven't seen yet, but you believe it so deeply that it fuels your faith in God no matter what is in your windshield view right now. This all happens when we get the essential backstop and background to life. So let's back up a little bit. Let's let Hebrews be a template for us. Let's widen the lens a little bit before we zoom back into whatever it is you're walking through right now. And when we widen the lens a little bit, we understand four major themes about what God is doing on planet Earth that in turn give us confidence. Theme number one, there is a God story going on around you right now. And if you only see your story going on around you right now, your confidence is like a pendulum. But you have to be able to see that there's a God story going on around you right now. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's take Hebrews for an example. Hebrews is a letter in post-Jesus times written to people whose primary understanding of God was pre-Jesus times. Can I say that one more time in case that was a little confusing? Hebrews was written after Jesus came to earth, died on a cross, was buried and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. This letter, Hebrews, written after all that happened. But it was written to people whose understanding of God was primarily rooted in all the events before that happened, namely the Old Testament, the old system, the law, Moses, and everything else. And so the writer is trying to help them see that what they understand of the story is only a part of a big God story that's happening in the world, and you and I need to understand this as well. Secondly, and we see this in the book of Hebrews, there is a God-man who is the Messiah or the hero in that God story. So your confidence, if you're the hero, and if you're the Messiah in your story, your confidence is either you know, sky high or super low, depending on the moment. But we're not the Messiah in the big story that's happening around us. We're not the hero in the God story. And therefore, our confidence can shift from self-confidence to confidence in him. Third, that story, this God story with this Messiah in it, ends with a kingdom come. So something's on the backside of this story, people. We're not just going to float away into never-never land. There is a coming kingdom of God 
at the end of this God's story. And there is a king who has won. He will right every wrong that king will, and he will heal every wound. So if you got stuff jacked up today, guess what? It's going to get unjacked up on that day. If the resolution in the court settlement didn't go fairly, guess what? It's all going to get put back together on that day. If something went unknown or unsaid that should have been known and should have been said, guess what? It's going to be known and it is going to be said on that day. And every wound, every wound, even the mortal wound of death itself is going to be healed on that day. There will be no sickness and there will be no death on that day. Do you know why? Because there is a God story happening, people, and in it is a God-man who is the Messiah, the hero of this story. And when this story concludes, a kingdom is going to come. There's going to be a king in that kingdom who is one. That king in that kingdom is going to right every wrong and heal every single wound. So, therefore, fourth thing, the God story and the God-man provide a God promise. For every man, for everyone. That God story is promising you something today, and that God man in that story is promising you something today. There's a God promise on the table for you today, and it is this, that if you put your hope and trust in Jesus, you're going to be in that kingdom come. You are going to win in the end. The backdrop of Hebrews, if you want to sum it up, is that Jesus is greater. That's the backdrop of the book of Hebrews. And if, if we don't see a little bit of this, so we need to do just a little work in Hebrews because you can get lost in this book. It's about the old covenant, about the old high priest, about the old system. Melchizedek is in there. And you've got Jesus and the new high priest, the new covenant, the new system, the new way of life. And you can kind of get lost in the journey here. But I want you to understand the big idea about Hebrews. The big idea is that Jesus is greater Greater than what? Well, he's greater than everything. In fact, I brought my Jesus Bible today because it's just so amazing, A, and it just helps so much. So Hebrews, if you don't really, I don't know what Hebrews is about. Well, Jesus Bible helps a little bit because Hebrews tells you that it is about Jesus, A, and it's about the fact that he is our greater sacrifice. So yes, the system, the old system, and all the old sacrifices before Jesus, great, but He's greater than the old system in all the old sacrifice. Turn the page. Awesome introduction to Hebrews. Incredible. Um, and then Hebrews begins on this page, chapter 1. But next door, I got a cool little thing over here that says Jesus is greater. And then it tells some of the things he's greater than that we see in this text. And then you say, great, now I've got a better point of view on Hebrews. And so I'm going to just jump right back in and I'm going to start reading. So I'm going to turn the page, chapter 2, and then chapter 3, chapter 4, and then chapter 5. And as soon as I get rolling, I get this beautiful little edition called The Majesty of Christ. And you know what it does? It tells me that Jesus is greater than anything I'm ever going to face in life, anybody I'm ever going to hope in in life, anything I'm ever going to depend on in life, that he is way, way greater than that. He is not just a guy that showed up in a manger in Bethlehem and died on a cross outside Jerusalem. He is, in fact, the most powerful person who has ever lived in the history of time and eternity. And all that is in the book of Hebrews. 
Hebrews itself unfolds a greater Jesus. If I just read down through this list, it starts up here. Jesus is the heir of all things. That's in chapter 1. He's the one through whom God made the world. So it's not like he came into the world. He made the world. So why would you put confidence in him? Well, he died on a cross. That's a good reason to put confidence in him. But what about the fact that he actually made the tree that they made the cross out of and the earth that the tree grew on and the cosmos that the earth existed in? He made all that. He is worthy of your trust and your confidence today. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his person, it tells us, chapter 1-3. He sustains the world by his power. This world isn't held together by political fabric and financial deals. This world is held together by the sustaining power of Jesus, period, right now. The only reason the world hasn't blown apart is because Jesus is holding it all together. Well, that sounds like a crazy idea. Chapter 1, verse 3. He is one with God and better than the angels. I heard someone say recently, my angel was helping me. Well, great. Angels are awesome. They fight for us every day. But don't put your hope in your angel because Jesus is greater than all your angels. Your angel worships Jesus because he's greater. He's greater than everything. He's the pioneer of salvation. He's the destroyer of the devil, chapter 2.14. He's a merciful high priest. He can empathize with our weaknesses. He is an eternal way for us. He is a mediator of a better deal. He is a model for enduring hostility. He is a great shepherd who leads us ultimately to our eternal home. Jesus is someone who is worthy of your confidence and worthy of your trust. And we see all that in the backdrop of Hebrews. So when we come in a moment and say, put your confidence in him, we're not just talking about some great man in history. We're talking about the one who is greater than every system, every way, everybody, every Old Testament character, every covenant, every custom, every sacrifice, every power. He's greater than all of that. And what has he promised us? He's promised us in Hebrews two primary things. Are you ready? Number one, he's promised that you can approach God through him. And that's big. Some of you have never even been in your boss's office. But you can approach Almighty God through Christ. Hebrews 4, you can come boldly, are you ready? With confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Because Christ made a way for all of us to come straight into the presence of holy God. So he's made an approach or access available, but the second thing that he's promised you is that you're going to arrive safely at home in eternity with him. You're gonna arrive safely at home in eternity with Jesus. So you have an approach to God, you can approach the almighty throne of God, and you're going to arrive into the victory of God in the end. That's what God's promising today. And you're like, wow, that's all great and fine and good. But what I really want God to do is give me some victory in the middle right now. 
And he may or may not do that, but it's a better promise for you to know that he is with you in the middle right now because you have access to him. And at the end of it all, no matter how it goes on planet Earth, you're going to arrive in victory with Christ at the end of this story. None of us have arrived yet, but we've got a promise that's keeping us going no matter what. And we see that in real life in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. We see ordinary people do amazing things. Now, when I say David, Samuel, Samson, Abraham, Moses, Noah, Enoch, Rahab, you think, oh, man, those are the legends, the real legends of our faith. But they were ordinary people just like you. They weren't perfect, and they didn't get it right all the time, but they had tapped into the fact that God had made them a promise, that if they would pursue him, he would lead them to a final destination with him. And so we get the story of Abel, verse 4, Enoch, verse 5, and down, Noah, verse 7, Abraham and Sarah, Uh, Sarah, when she was old and couldn't have children, she believed the promise that she and Abraham were going to be the parents of a multitude of nations. And so she just kept believing and believing and believing and not losing hope in that and believing and believing and believing. And at the end of the day, way past childbearing years, a woman who had been barren all of her life miraculously has a child. And through that child, that Abraham and Sarah believed God for, God did in fact bring a Savior, a Messiah named Jesus, who opened a way for the nations to come to know God. So in fact, he is still today making the descendants of Abraham and Sarah more numerous than the stars in the sky. He's fulfilling the promise that he gave them, and they kept believing in that promise, not perfectly, but they kept trusting in the promise. We come down, we get Abraham, come down a little further, we get Jacob, come down a little further, we get Joseph, come down a little further, we get Moses, come down a little further, we get um, Rahab, a little further, we get Gideon, and then Barak, and then Samson, and then Jephthah, and then David, and then Samuel, and all these people saw God do extraordinary things. But then the tide turns in the next verse down. If you keep reading to verse 35, it says, women receive back their dead raised to life again. So in other words, as the story of God is moving along, we are seeing a Red Sea parted for Moses. A baby was uh, given at 100 years old for Abraham and Sarah. We saw David have great victories. Rahab, just in her faith, let the spies down, and so she was saved when her city was besieged. We see all these stories of God intervening, but then all of a sudden we see the tide turn, and we come to a place where we understand that people had to pay a price for their faith in God. And in verse 35, it says, some of the women received back their dead, raised to life again. You're like, man, I'd like to have that kind of faith. I'd like to have that kind of confidence, right? We're in the messy middle. It's victory. It's winning. Not just winning in the end, Louis. I want to win now. I want to see God's work now. That's faith, right? No, faith is confidence in what God has promised. And what has God promised? Access to me anytime, anywhere, 
for the whole time you're on planet Earth and ultimately arriving at your destination with me in victory in the end. I'm promising that to every single one of you. I guarantee that if you will come through Christ and start a relationship with me, and if you will keep your eyes on me to the very end, you will win with me in the end. I guarantee it. And so the promise wasn't a bailout. The promise was a payoff. And that's what we see in the next line. It says others, so some are getting their they're dead raised to life. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. Potentially the writer of this letter was chained and put in prison for his faith in Christ. And so now we're seeing that the tide has turned and a price is being paid. Verse 37, they were stoned, some of them, they were sawed in two. Are you kidding me? They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. So what sometimes we think is, man, the great reward of faith is going to go to the person who somehow has figured out how to get a victory in every single story in life. But no, the reward of faith comes to those who don't lose sight of the ultimate story of God unfolding around them, and they endure in that story all the way to the end. Some seeing the miraculous, others getting sawed in two for their faith in Christ. All of them with one thing in common in this story. And you know what the one thing in common in this story is? Not one of them got what they were promised on planet Earth. You say, man, that's depressing. Verse 13, all these people were still living by faith when they died. Can we say that again? All these people were still living by faith when they died. And that's the goal today. And that's the confidence God wants to put in you and put in me today. That's the faith that God wants to birth in us today, that we are still confident in God on the day that we come to the end of our life. And you know why that's important? Because none of us are going to get the full payoff of everything that's been promised to us until that day. Hello? Are you with me? None of us are going to get the full payoff of the promise of God until that day. And so this is what he writes about them. They were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They, hello, didn't get the access to God or the, I see the kingdom of God come. They didn't get either one of those. They hadn't seen Jesus. They didn't even know how the Messiah was going to work. They didn't know there was going to be a cross and an empty tomb. They didn't know any of that, and they didn't even see any of that. They just kept moving toward that city of God. We have such an advantage over them, over Noah and Abraham and over Isaac and Jacob and over David and Samuel. We've got such an advantage because we've got what they hope for in part, but we don't have what they hope for in full. It says they 
hadn't seen or received the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had an opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And then look at this amazing statement. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's like, see those people? They haven't even gotten what I promised them yet, but look how faithful they are still pursuing me. Look how they're not giving up under pressure. Look how they're not folding in opposition. Look how they're not caving in when the circumstances don't affirm that there's a great God story going around. You see that? Man, those people fire me up right there. I love being their God, and I love that they are my people, for he has prepared a city for them. Now see, the problem, I think, for me and for some of us is we, we've forgotten that God has us on a journey in the messy middle, but he's leading us to a city that he is building for us. It's not escapism. It's not, man, life's hard and I need a crutch and my crutch is going to be the sweet by and by in heaven and I'm not confident enough and strong enough to live in a hard world so I need to just keep singing songs about the future by and by. No, it's a belief and a confidence that the future by and by blows away everything we've seen in the reality of the here and now. That this city knocks out every city. Dubai, great. Build the tallest building in the world on sand. Maybe not the best idea. Build a Manhattan around it and a Miami skyland and a Chicago over there. Build Palm Island in the middle of an ocean. Build up islands out of sand and put million dollar mansions on them. It's stunning. It's staggering. It's mind blowing. It's, it's, it's beyond description. It's, anybody been to Dubai? Hello. It is absolutely shuts down all the, all the ideas you have about what people can do. And then you start, start thinking, wow, that's great. That's what people can do. What can God do? And what must heaven look like? And what must the creator of the entire cosmos be building for me? So yeah, I love Top Golf. It's a great concept and an amazing idea. But what would golfing look like in heaven? What would a driving range that Jesus built look like? It would blow your mind. And yeah, things are a little broken down here. A lot broken down here. Disappointing, fragmented, dark, cloudy, and sometimes all of it doesn't add up, but I'm on my way to a city that God has built for me. Now, two things can happen. One, we can use that as a place to go away from the world and cease engaging with the world, or that can become fuel for us in the world as we engage with the world to say, I'm telling you what, I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on trying. Yeah, racial reconciliation, not easy, but I'm going to hang in there. Yeah, it looks like the world's coming unglued, but I'm not going to lose hope. Yeah, making things right in a broken world takes a long time, but I'm in it for the long haul. Where are you getting that kind of encouragement, optimism, hope, confidence, faith? I'm getting it in the fact that I'm going to a place that is going to be so great that I am willing to pay whatever price it takes to be faithful until the very 
end. And I believe we have cashed out on the promise of Jesus. And therefore, our confidence is low. Our confidence looking around is low. And he knows that. And so he, he doesn't say, be more like Abraham. Be, be more like Noah. Be more like Moses. Be more like all these great people in the hall of faith. No. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, therefore, okay, so you got, you got all that real ordinary people believing God for something they didn't fully get. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our confidence for our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. They cheer you on. <laughs> Come on. Because they've all now arrived in heaven. I mean, Moses actually got into the promised land standing on that Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He saw little glimpses of the promise, but now he's in. Abraham's in. Sarah is in. Moses is in. Noah is in. And they cheer us on and say, gosh, this is actually everything we dreamed it was going to be. And they're cheering you on. That cloud of witness cheers you on, but it's Jesus who shows you how. They cheer you on, but he shows you how. So they're, they're encouragement, but he is the example for you and me. So here's the question that we want to settle on as we kind of come down to the landing here. How do we live in confidence in the middle when it doesn't look like we're winning? How do we live in confidence in the middle when it doesn't look like we're winning? Number one, confidence is determined by what's in view. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, let me just give you a dumb example. Let's say I, I sent you an email, Shelly and I did, and said, hey, we're going to Los Angeles, and we'd love for you and your family to go with us. Or it's spring break. Are you available? You said, yeah. We said, well, pay for it all. All expenses paid. Bring the kids. Whole deal. We got it all taken care of. We're going to go to Disneyland, go to the ocean, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be amazing. Okay, great. You'd be like, man, that's pretty good. And then your confidence would rest pretty quickly in Shelly and me. You'd be like, they probably know how to plan a good trip. Or you would go, I don't know whether they can plan a good trip or not. You know, I, I, so somewhere your confidence would be built just in the fact that we invited you to go. But you'd probably say, okay. And so we're going to pick you up at 2 o'clock. Well, your next question or questions, depending on who you are, if you're one of those people, you'd have 100. But maybe you're just one of those that has two. But you're, everybody would have two. When are we leaving? And what would the second one be? How are we getting there? That would be a question eventually. And you would be assuming that we would be flying there because we're going to L.A. and we planned it. But what if Shelly and I showed up at your house with a pogo stick? <laughs> Just one pogo stick. Me on her shoulders. 
coming up the driveway. Say, hey, we're ready to go, 2 o'clock, let's get the kids, let's load it up. And you're like, ah, my confidence in this trip is sinking. It's not that you have a problem in going to Los Angeles, it's that you have a problem in how you're going to get there. So what if we rolled up or rocked up in a unicycle? Confidence is diving. What if we came driving up in a brand new Range Rover Sport? You'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. It's going to take longer than I thought, but we're going in style and we're going to get there. No doubt. What if I said, hey, jump in the, in the Range Rover Sport, and I drove us to a private airport, and there was a Gulfstream jet sitting there with the little stairs down and the pilots standing out going, hi, welcome, everybody. Y'all ready to go to Los Angeles? You'd be like, I feel good about this trip. <laughs> Others of you would be like, I'm not going in that thing. I can't get in there. My confidence just tanked. Can we go back to the pogo stick? It's going to take longer, but I will feel better about it the whole way we're going there because we'll only be two feet off the ground, maximum at any given point, and I don't like small planes. And so I say, great. Sorry, guys. Uh, jump back in the Range Rover. We speed around to Hartsfield Jackson. We get out. We go in. They're standing there with your boarding passes. Everybody's got TSA pre-check. We roll right into a 757 business class, of course. And you're like, I feel way better about this. And I know the Gulf Stream's the way to go, but this is better for me. And some of you'd be like, I don't like planes and I can't fly. See, your confidence in that trip would go up and down based on the means of travel of how we're going to Los Angeles. I show up in a 1960 Vanagon. You're going to be like, "Mm, we're not going to make it to Texas. (laughs) And Jesus is saying today, how are we going to the city of God? I'm taking you. I'm taking you. That's how you're going. And when I hear that, knowing who the God-man is, the Messiah, the hero in our story, my confidence soars when I fix my eyes on Jesus. Some of you got your eyes on your circumstances and your confidence is in the toilet. It's when you get your eyes back on Jesus that you believe, I'm actually going to make it through this and I'm going to see life on the other side of this. The big idea is this, that our confidence is not as much about having heroic faith as it is about a hero in which to put your faith. So some of you thought, man, I just want to have that heroic faith, and we do want our faith to grow. All of us do. But we, it's not our faith growing. It's the understanding that we see Jesus and our faith is in him, and he is the one who's going to get us through. Secondly, our confidence comes from knowing that our days on earth are part of a bigger story. See, that's what happened when we see Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And what is Jesus doing? Well, in a minute, he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what you would think the verse would say. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look, he's reigning in heaven. But it doesn't. It says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who went to the cross. 
And you're like, wait a minute, okay, ah, that doesn't look like a confident moment when people are stripping you down and falsely accusing you and sticking a crown of thorns on your head and nailing you to a cross. That doesn't look like a confident moment. But here's the thing, confidence comes when we understand that every moment of our life is part of a bigger story. So Jesus on the cross is one mosaic tile, but that mosaic tile fits in the whole story of who Jesus is and what he's done for the world. And trust me, the whole story of what Jesus has done for the world and who he is is a phenomenal God story that makes Jesus look exactly like who he is, the champion and the victor of all time for all people. If you look at one mosaic in that story, like some of his followers did, you think, man, we might as well bail out. God's lost the plot. This whole thing went off the rails. The whole hope, all the dreams, all the promise, all that stuff that we were hoping in, gone out the window. I've shared this story before, and Shelly shared it at the Grove, but for a long time before we actually moved to Atlanta, when we lived back in Texas, this hung on the office wall where we worked. People would walk in, and they would look at it, and they would be like, what is that? And we worked with college students, so they weren't holding back, and they are like, man, what happened to that? It looks like somebody threw up on your wall. And then I would just let that sit for a moment, and I would go, yes, my dad did that. (laughs) And then they would be like, well, yeah, okay, cool. And um, the reason why I had it was, A, because I like abstract art. And some of you don't, and that's fine. I mean, everybody has their own taste. Some of you need a boat and a little guy fishing, and that makes sense. And others of you like abstract. Cool thing about abstract art is you can put it any way you want. You got a more narrow wall? Great. Put it up like that. Just as cool. Um, But the reason why I had it in the office um, was was because it meant a lot to me. It has my dad's signature on it, 1980. But it was a story. It was a story of it all. So my dad was a design, uh, a graphic designer. Uh, designed things in the old days like Coca-Cola cartons and Chick-fil-A logos. But in his heart was abstract art. So sometimes he'd stay at the office over a weekend and come home with something. Like one time he came home with this thing he made called the Abstract Magician. And it was this giant thing of this really scary-looking magician. And it was so big that we lived in a little condo on the west side over here. We didn't have a wall in our house as big as this thing. The only place you could put this thing, you know if you have a two-story, that landing where the stairs turn and there's that skinny big wall right there that you don't know what to do with? The only wall we could put it on. So we put it on that wall. And we would have friends. My sister and I come to spend the night at our house and we'd be coming in late, sneaking up the stairs, and, you, and kids would do this. I mean, our friends, teenagers, would be, ah! You know I mean? It's the thing looking down, kind of scary. My mom hated it, right? Mom hated it. And my mom was a praying, fasting woman. And so one day, my dad says to me, hey, Ace, uh, can you help me with something? I said, yeah. So what are we going to do? He goes, we're going to take that painting down off the wall. And I'm like, oh, man, Mom has been in the prayer closet. Man, something's going on here. We take it down. This is the beauty of abstract art. We put it on the patio, take the frame off, and get a circular saw. We just cut off, like, one edge of it goes. And then we cut the bottom of it off. My dad kind of looks at it, thinks, okay, that's good. I think we've met our compromise here. Puts the frame back on. <laughs> you can do that. You know, picture of a boat and, you know, the little boy with a fishing pole just got cut in half. But abstract art, you can make it work. So we put the frame back on it, put it back on the wall where we had it, but less intimidating, less daunting for our guests. And then my dad, of all things, um, has this fluke 
health thing that happens, and he goes into a coma and has to have an emergency brain surgery, and, and in that brain surgery, they took out a part of my dad's brain so that he would live, and the part they took out was the part where all your artistic ability resides. We found that out after the fact. And one of the days that we were in Atlanta, Shelly and I, living in Texas, came to help my mom with the care of my dad because he'd become disabled as a result of all this. And I was in the coat closet in that same condominium downstairs, and I was looking in the back, and in the back of that closet was that piece of that painting. And I was like, man, I'm getting that thing out, taking it back to Texas, framing it, and putting it on my office wall because it's reminding me, A, of my dad, who's awesome, and of his art, which we love, and it's reminding me that God works in a bigger story. So people would come in and they'd say, what is it? And I would say, well, it's a long, long story. But what I knew in my mind was that it was the bottom of this guy. And I saw every time I looked at that piece, I saw the whole painting. You know, you can kind of just get the beauty of it because most people missed it. But I wasn't kidding when I told you that it was pretty intimidating (laughs) up on the top of the landing. (laughs) I don't know where that side piece ended up, but if you see that on eBay somewhere, let me know. And so when I would look at this, I would always see that. And I would say, I know it doesn't make sense to you because you can't see the whole painting. And God wants you to have confidence that in every part of the story, there's a big story going on. And in every part of the story, you have access to God. In every part of the story, you have hope of a city that God is building for you. And there are going to be days when that's all you see. And the enemy says, abandon God because he's abandoned you. And you say, I would if I hadn't fixed my eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is winning this story and that story and every story They're all going to culminate with a kingdom come, a king who's one, who will right all wrongs and heal all wounds. And I'm going to be standing there with him. We're coming up on the anniversary of a tragic accident in Athens that took the life, the lives of four young college girls, one of whose family is a part of Passion City Church. And at Christina's memorial service, it was a nighttime gathering, one of the most powerful things I've been a part of. Shelly and I just stunned 
by God just everywhere in that gathering. Church packed, a thousand people outside. People shared, Jesus was honored, Jesus was lifted. The gathering started interestingly with a worship song called Good, Good Father. So the whole night had unfolded. There'd been an open mic, all of her friends shared. So we're probably three hours plus into this memorial and it was time for the service to end and as is customary, the family all stood and several of the pastors who had a part in that night came to encourage personally the family. And then the casket with Teeny's body was gonna go up a slight incline in the center aisle and out to a waiting hearse to a cremation moment. This was the last time on earth that this family was gonna be in proximity to the body of their daughter, their brother, their sister. Just a few minutes until an earthly goodbye and no turning back. The hugs lasted a while and for some reason while we were talking and hugging and encouraging each person in that family and now as the casket started to go up and the family started to go up and it was right there behind them, I'm hearing out of this side of my brain, Jonathan Wolf, who's been a almost long, long, long time friend who was playing the piano and he's playing Good, Good Father. I think, and I, don't, I can't speak for him, that he was thinking this is gonna take three minutes and then we'll say goodbye come to the reception. Thanks for being here. But the whole church is standing and this ends up taking about 10 minutes. And so Jonathan plays the verse. I hear him. He sings the verse. He sings the chorus. He's back to the verse, back to the chorus. And then he just plays for a while and then he's uh, not sure what to do. Should I play another song? No, I'll just keep playing this song. And as we finally took the first few steps up that aisle, I'll never forget it. Out of my ear, I could hear him settling into the bridge of that song. Do you know what it says, the bridge of Good, Good Father? It says, you are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways to us. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways to us. And my eyes were focused on one thing and my ears were focused on something completely different and there was such a dissonance in that moment. It was like what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling and the grief that's just building up for these last few steps before it's literally shouts into the back of a hearse. We love you, baby girl. We love you, teeny. We're just there. before that door closes and that car drives off. And that's what is in view and that's the soundtrack. You're perfect. He can't be perfect. You're perfect. He can't be perfect. And then it all resolved. And you know how it resolved? It didn't resolve in a theological equation that I worked out because I'm a professional. It resolved because Christina... Teeny had faith in Jesus, and just like the ancients, she was 
walking and living by faith when she died. She believed in Jesus. That's all that service had been about. She wrote songs of praise to Jesus. They played them in that service. She encouraged other families who lost their teenage daughters in what seemed to be early death. And those stories were told in that service. And now it's teeny. And the dissonance resolved when I realized that she's not in that casket. She's not going to be cremated. Her body is in that casket and her body is going to be cremated. And on the day that we all see Jesus in the twinkling of an eye, he is going to restore to her her earthly body in a perfected state. But until that day, I am confident, Paul said, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'm thinking we're not rolling Teeny out of here. Teeny's in heaven. Teeny's with Jesus. Teeny stepped over. Teeny's got the promise. She got the access and she arrived safely at home. She got the access and she arrived safely at home. She's clapping now for her mom and her dad and her brother and her sister. And she's saying, come on, guys, it's as good as we said it was. Come on, guys, it's better than we ever dreamed. Come on, I know the tears are gonna last in the night, but joy is gonna come in the morning. I'm confident of this, the psalmist said, that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Come on, don't lose hope, don't lose heart, don't give in, don't quit too soon, don't cash in too early. It's as good as we dreamed it would be. And I thought, God, you made her, you saved her, you redeemed her. And in the heartbeat of, uh, in, the, in the instant that her last heartbeat on earth happened, you took her into your presence gloriously. You are perfect, God. In all of your ways, you are perfect the day your son was crushed so that we could have hope in this moment. Everything you do, you do well. And it may not look like it in the messy middle mosaic of today, but I promise you it is all going to be worth it in the God story we see in the end. Oh, I know. I know that death stings. I know the pain has been unbearable. I know the divorce papers are sitting in your throat and choking you to death right now. I know cancer is real. I know that hardship can make the night so dark, but I'm telling you, God is with you and he's promising you, don't take your eyes off me. Just keep on coming. Just keep on coming. Just keep on coming. Just keep on coming. And in the end, you're going to stand with me wearing the victor's crown. Because I've won. Don't you think he believed it? Are you going to arrest me? Okay. Are you going to stab me in the back? My own follower? Really? Are you going to mock me? You're gonna spit on me? You're gonna falsely accuse me? You're gonna railroad me? You're gonna lead me out? You're gonna whip my back? 
You're going to tear my flesh. You're going to strip me down. You're going to beat me within an inch of my life only to crucify me and crush me and kill me and bury me. God, you're going to exchange me for all the sins of all these people? That's the way this is going to go down? Well, I'll tell you, I'll do all that. And here's why. Because I am going to win in the end. You can mock me. You can beat me. You can forsake me. You can betray me. You can kill me, crush me, bury me, forget me. But I will win in the end. And that joy... That joy of you coming to life and you knowing God, it put fuel in his heart. So the message writer says, do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way, all these veterans cheering us on. It means we'd better get on with it, strip down, start running, and never quit. No extra spiritual fat. No parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way, cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor, right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility he plowed through, that will shoot adrenaline into your souls. I promise you've got access to God for mercy and grace right now. Use it. And if you hope in Him, you're going to stand with Him in His victory in the end.